0: How much more might hospitalization for COVID cost you today than a year ago?
1: Waning COVID vaccine effectiveness.
0: Loneliness and preventing self-harm.
1: And developing an oral treatment respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. That's what we're
0: talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: And Rick, how about if we turn right to MMWR, this is a look at this waning immunity, which is front and center for many of us these days against COVID-19 after vaccination.
1: Concerns about the waning of effectiveness of the vaccines, which have resulted, by the way, in recommendations for a booster. We're talking about mRNA vaccines. It's been recognized that after the second dose, certainly months afterwards, there's a decline in antibodies. So it's been recommended that people get a third dose. Now we've had people that have received booster, but we've also had a change in the virus to the Omicron virus. What this study attempted to do was assess the waning two-dose and three-dose effectiveness of the mRNA vaccines against both emergency department and urgent care encounters, and also hospitalizations among adults during periods of both the Delta and Omicron variant predominance. So this is a study that took place from August 2021 to January 2022. During the Omicron predominant period, the vaccine effectiveness against visits and hospitalizations was 87% and 91% respectively during the first two months after the third dose. But that decreased to 66% and 78% respectively by the fourth month after the third dose. Protection against hospitalizations was even better. Than against emergency department and urgent care visits. It's effective, but it's not as effective four months after the third dose as it was compared to two months after the third dose.
0: Clearly, this is something that we're all starting to worry about now because many of us have had that third dose more than four months or at four months in the past. I would just note for you, of course, that Novavax has gone to the FDA for an EUA to start using their vaccine, and many people are advocating for that.
1: As we've talked before about, the Novavax may be more effective, against different variants because it recognizes a different antigen. But I would suspect it will also have waning antibody responses as well. That's just the nature of vaccines in general.
0: However, it is still the best advice to go through the full vaccine regimen because it offers the best protection against severe infection and death.
1: There's no question about that. What will be on the horizon is do we need a fourth dose? A recently done Israeli study showed that The fourth dose will increase antibody response about fivefold. What we don't know is whether it's any more effective at preventing hospitalizations or death or whether it's necessary.
0: Let's turn to JAMA Network Open. This is a research letter. So here in the United States, even while we're waiting for Israeli data, we had, of course, the federal government step in and say, hey, folks, we're not going to be giving people all kinds of bills if they get hospitalized for COVID-19. And so this euphemistic term, I'm going to call it cost sharing. That would be your copay or whatever if you're insured or if you're a Medicare beneficiary. And in this case, they're looking at folks with a Medicare Advantage plan. So they looked at hospitalizations with a primary diagnosis of COVID-19 that began and ended between March 1, 2020 and March 30th, 2021. And that was after this time period where they quit having shared costs. So what they showed was that the percentage of people who had private insurance, who had some kind of cost sharing imposed, varied between 2% to just under 9% in March, 2020 versus 82 to 84% in March, 2021. And for the Medicare Advantage folks, that proportion increased to about 66% versus a high of just shy of 3% in those same time periods. And they also calculated their mean out-of-pocket total spending for those who are privately insured, just less than $4,000 of those Medicare Advantage plan Beneficiaries, $1,638. So once again, these are good questions to ask yourself. Do you want to not get vaccinated and run the risk of having these kinds of bills that are going to no doubt go up? And the author suggests also something that I think is really interesting, that taking a look at these kinds of bills that might happen may cause people not to come forward for medical care if they do have COVID.
1: Right. Elizabeth, early on, as you said, less than 9% of individuals, usually less than 5%, actually paid any bill at all. And this prompted people to receive early care for their COVID infections. But now, since the vast majority of us will encumber some costs, on the one hand, you might think, God, that's going to encourage people to get vaccinated. I don't think that's going to be the case. I do think, however, people are going to think twice about going to the hospital to receive care. And that could be deleterious. You want to get treated early in the course of your disease, not late. And I assume most of our listeners have been vaccinated and boosted. If not, I hope this will encourage them to do so.
0: Yeah, more to come on this one too. Let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine, our friend, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and wow, why don't we have a vaccine for this one?
1: That's a great question, because globally, RSV infections in children younger than five years of age are estimated to cause 3.2 million hospitalizations and somewhere close to 100 to 150,000 deaths. And by the way, those are primarily in the developing world. Even in the U.S., among adults, for example, it causes 177,000 hospitalizations and 14,000 deaths annually, over 500,000 emergency room visits for kids under the age of five. So we do need it. The trouble is we've not been very good at finding an effective treatment for the early stages of disease. We have an aerosolized treatment that's limited to hospitalized patients and young children with severe lower respiratory disease. And then we have an antibody, but we rarely give these because of the unfavorable side effects. And again, they're for only high-risk hospitalized patients. Interestingly enough, the way that we examine whether an agent is beneficial or not is we actually give individuals RSV infection and give them placebo or their drugs and see whether we can decrease viral load and decrease symptoms. So this is a new agent. The other agents prevent RSV from fusing to the cell. This is a particular type of agent, a replication inhibitor, it can work even if the virus has already gotten into the cell. If you look at viral titers, no matter what dose was given, it decreased viral titers, decreased symptoms, and decreased mucus production. Now we're going to take it to the clinical. You say, well, that's all great. We still have to test it in a larger setting. And in the larger setting, it's usually people that have had infections for two or three or four days already. We don't know whether it would be effective in that setting. Oftentimes, the virus isn't the problem, it's the immune system at that particular point. And so does this need to be given with an anti-inflammatory agent? We don't know. But at least in the early human virus challenges, it appears to be effective. This will prompt it to go on to phase three trials to see whether in the clinical setting, whether it can be useful.
0: This thing, of course, EDP-938, and it targets the RSV nucleoprotein, just for the nerds among us. We need to mention that RSV can be a problem also for immunocompromised people.
1: Correct. We talked about young kids under the age of five, older individuals, and especially, as you mentioned, those that are immunocompromised, are on high-dose steroids, chemotherapy, or have underlying cancer.
0: I'm a little disconcerted by the fact that this is this virus we've known about forever and we still don't have a vaccine for it. And it just reminds me that there are so many things, HIV is another, where we've known about it a long time and we do not have a vaccine yet.
1: Agreed. Hopefully this will pan out.
0: Let's move to two studies that I'm going to treat together. Um, we're going to start with the BMJ. This is a meta-analysis of the prevalence of loneliness across 113 countries. And the other one that I'm going to treat kind of in conjunction with this is in JAMA. It's looking at offering care management or online behavioral therapy skills versus usual care to try to ameliorate thoughts of self-harm among adult outpatients with suicidal ideation. So let's turn first to the issue of loneliness. They ended up looking at 57 studies and they assessed the rates of loneliness, if you will, among different age groups, adolescents, young adults, middle-aged adults, and older adults loneliness rates are actually really pretty high. For adolescents, their pool prevalence was 9.2% in Southeast Asia to 14.4% in the Eastern Mediterranean region. So one out of 10, that's a lot of people, it seems like to me, who are lonely. Does that surprise you?
1: No. What I was surprised is how little data we have
0: they show that Northern European countries had the lowest rates of loneliness while Eastern European countries had the highest. They also conclude two things that I think are worth noting that loneliness should be incorporated into a general health surveillance tool so that we would be able to assess it. And this study is a benchmark because it looks at data before the pandemic and that this issue of loneliness is probably exacerbated now because so many of us are in these situations where we're online and we're isolated. So let's then switch to JAMA and this look at people who have suicidal ideation and whether there's any way to kind of machinize, if you will, interventions that would help people to not ultimately commit self-harm. This is a big study, 18,000 plus people. They were randomized with a previous history of suicidal ideation or suicidal behavior They randomized them to either care management intervention that included a systematic outreach and care, a skills training intervention that introduced what they called four dialectical behavioral therapy skills, including mindfulness, mindfulness of current emotion, opposite action, and paced breathing, or usual care. These were delivered primarily through electronic health record online messaging, and they were intended to supplement ongoing mental health care. They had sort of a low rate of participation. 31% of the participants offered care management and 39% of those offered skills training were actively engaged in this. The surprising finding was that among these adults with frequent suicidal ideation, care management did not significantly reduce their risk of self-harm and the brief dialectical behavioral therapy skills actually significantly increased their risk of self-harm.
1: This was disappointing on several levels. First of all, it's a well-done large study. It's said 18,000 patients. It's hard to get a study of this magnitude looking at behavioral changes. Disappointing that there was such a low uptake, less than 40% of patients in either of the active treatment groups actually completed it, despite the fact that it was tailored so you could give it, as you said, over the computer and online with a little bit of coaching. I was a little bit heartened. By the fact that even in people that had suicide ideation, relatively few actually had any self-inflicted harm, about three to 4%. And fortunately, it was mostly non-fatal. I don't think that the active treatment group, statistically, it looked like one of the treatment groups actually had a little bit higher reports of self-harm. The take-home message I got is that either of these particular ones offered the way they are really weren't beneficial online, it doesn't seem to be helpful. And the disappointing thing is we have such a shortage of healthcare providers, behavioral healthcare providers, you're looking for alternative ways to meet the need. And I would have predicted at least one of these would have been helpful, disappointing that neither was.
0: Very disappointing. And I guess I would ask you right now, if you were dealing with somebody who was experiencing suicidal ideation, what would you say? What would you recommend?
1: The nice thing is we're comparing this to usual care, not no care, but this is the usual care, what we're doing right now to help meet the needs. I would continue that. The question is, does adding these other things on top of it provide additional benefits? No. So let's not waste our time on doing that. Let's either use new techniques or deliver them in different ways, but let's not keep spinning our wheels doing things that haven't been effective. But usual care, Elizabeth, again, I want to point out in these individuals with suicide ideation, self-harm was really relatively low. That's good.
0: On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy,
1: and I'm Rick Lane. Y'all, listen up and make healthy choices.